WPSC. Our guest today, Carl Palmer. I'm Professor David Kirk Philp. We're here with uh, your Dr. Esteban. There we go. We're also here with Carl Palmer, who's an awesome drummer and also here, and percussionist, and also here with Devana Aprovado. Say hello, Devana. Hello. Good to have you here. We're going to get right into it. We are not going to give all the intro stuff. We already had uh, Bruce, uh, Carl's manager, on as part one of this interview. So uh, Carl Palmer has been, uh, he's a legendary drummer and percussionist. And he's been in ELP. He's been in Asia. He's uh, right now. It's called the ELP Legacy. Yeah, Tour. Carl Palmer's ELP Legacy. That's the name of the group. In okay. Fact. It, right, right. The actual we like, act trademark of the correct. is Carl Palmer's Carl, ELP. CPL Carl Palmer Legacy, but it's Carl Palmer's ELP Legacy because mainly we're playing uh, pieces of music uh, from the ELP catalog. Uh, which would be classical adaptations and original pieces. Obviously, there are other classical adaptations I've introduced because the band's been going since 2001, which weren't directly related to mm -hmm. ELP. So the, the spectrum of uh, sort of sound and sort of uh, quality and quantity is probably about six hours of music we could play. Uh, and that's mainly ELP and probably two hours of outside music, which mm -hmm. I've introduced since we've been going. Mm -hmm. Would you have, and I know last year was the passing of uh, Keith Emerson and Greg Lake, yes. but would you have the legal ability to tour as ELP, even though there's no EL? Could I don't you see how do you, you understand when a group's called ELP, it's not a very good move from a business point mm -hmm. of view. If you have a band called Yes, you can have people walk in and out daily. Mm -hmm. yeah. right. If you have a band called Emerson, Lake and Palmer, it says exactly good what point. it does on the tin, that's what it is. Yeah. It's Emerson, Lake and Palmer. You yeah. can't replace Emerson, you can't replace Lake, you can't replace Palmer. Nevertheless, I did give them permission way back in the 90s, was it the 90s, early 90s, to, um, to have Cozy Powell come in and play when I couldn't play because I'd got a contract with Geffen Records. I was finishing off a, an Asia album. I'd been paid. There was roughly six weeks left. ELP had not played for 12 years. I decided that I would like to go back and play with the LP. I explained it to Asia, and Asia said, okay, fine. We won't be going out for a little while because the album's not released until when. And I explained to Greg Lake, Keith Emerson, you need to wait six weeks. Actually, it would be four, but I told them six. You always mm -hmm. keep two weeks in the pocket. Even you know that, mm -hmm. I can tell. So what happened was um, they said no. We wow. want to go out straight away. So I said, that's a very foolish move business-wise, but I have no problem with that if that's what you want to do. And my logic behind that was if they couldn't wait um, four weeks or six weeks after waiting 12 years not being together, <laughs> something was drastically wrong. I had to view it from a business point of view. I'd rather them go out and play and get the whole of the catalogue, which would be 18 pieces, mm -hmm. some of them three CDs deep, promoted, that I'll be getting paid for anyway, than not go out at all. So I yeah. said, you go and do what you've got to do. Plus, I let them use the logo. Um, so they and that was a different time because you were making more money from recording. It was music nothing at all. Today. Yeah, it, well, I mean, a different, different time. Yeah, just different time completely. Yeah, different yeah. time. But any time a group goes on tour and the back catalogue gets promoted, which it does 
anyway, whether it's now, then, or wherever. Right. It always gets promoted in some shape or form. It's always worth sort of uh, going out and playing because that will happen. So I didn't want to stop then because I wasn't in the group. I thought it was a bad decision business-wise because it meant that there would be some friction within the public. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's not the original group. You know all those stories. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, I gained and they lost, really. They lost. I let them use the logo, and we got back together after that. We played for another eight years together, so it's water under the yeah, bridge. Right, right. Doesn't mean yeah. anything. Did you know Cozy Powell? Yes, I did very well. Did he ever talk to you about? Yes, he that? did. Yes. Was that? Was, did he feel weird about that? No, he didn't feel. No, no. He asked me what the situation was. We'd been friends for many, many. He's one of the very few drummers that I was actually connect. Well, connected to. We knew each other. Um, because we were going to sign him to a record label we had called Manticore, which was ELP's record label. He was going to be in a band called Stray Dog. And uh, I met him and I spoke to him. I told him what it was all about. Uh, and very nice guy. Uh, from Sirencester, the Cotswolds area of England, which has always been a favorite area of mine. So we had that in common, apart from playing drums. And that's how I sort of met him and that's how we got talking. And when he got offered the opportunity, he asked me why. I wasn't going and I told him exactly. He could not believe it, he thought it was horrendous. I said, it doesn't matter. I said, that's just the way they think. In actual fact, to be really pedantic, it wasn't Keith Emerson, it was Greg Lane. But I don't hold it against him at all, just so we know where it was, that's where it was. And I went on to play another eight years with Greg Lane, so there was no malice there for yeah. me. Cozy understood completely, but thought it was very weird. And um, I would say there was a, they probably lost if you have an original group and you have a single which could be very strong, there's probably more people going to get behind it with an original group mm -hmm. than the group that's been augmented. And there was a track called Touch and Go, uh, which is Green Sleeves, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we nicked the theme there, um, which they played, which, if it had been called Emerson, Lake and Palmer, probably would have been a bigger radio hit. I'm not saying a chart hit, but would have been a bigger radio hit, um, which would have meant more ticket sales mm -hmm. than what they had calling Emerson, Lake and Powell. But that's just what I'm thinking, you know. We don't know the business that far, mm -hmm. but th we know that it makes a difference. Whether it was a difference big enough, who can tell? Right. Mm -hmm. so I, when I was uh, in college, that's when that, that album came Correct. out. I was sophomore yeah. college. Yeah. But we played Touch and Go. Yes, of course. And I remember it was, uh, that was the track. Emerson Lake and Powell was the yeah. thing. And that, was, that, that was the money track. That was the money track. So they did a tour of America, did reasonably well. The album didn't sell great, and that was it. It was all mm -hmm. over. Um, one quick drummer question, because Devon... Incidentally, you missed out a band that I was in, um, just so you know, in 1968 when I first came to this country, I was in a band called The Crazy World of Arthur yeah, Brown. Yeah. We had a number one single and album at the same time with Fire. So that was my that was my introduction to America, yeah. and that was my learning curve in my career. Is that produced by Pete Townsend? Um, no, it's Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp. Who, okay, who were the... whose managers? Who were managers, and they right. owned track records. That's what, okay. Yeah, yeah. So Townsend had nothing to do with that track? Well, I think Townsend was in there, but they've got the, I think they've got the credit. Oh, okay. I think Chris uh, Kit Lambert has, actually. Okay. He committed suicide. Not because yeah. of that album, but later on <laughs> in life, unfortunately. Yeah. Good man. Very good mm -hmm. manager. Very good well, manager. your connection to that whole Who world. Uh, I had a question. Yes. You were on Dal Roger Daltrey's album, Under a Raging Moon. Yes, I did that. Yes, you played yes. on the song yes. dedicated to Keith Moon yes, called yes. Under a Raging Moon. Seven drum solos at the end. You were yes. drum solo number six. Could be. Okay. Just as a drum question, you actually... He's a drummer. I'm a drummer, so yeah. that's why I ask. And it is, it's a great song for people to listen they to. They just drop people something. in. They just drop right. people in. And Cozy Powell was one of them. Uh, a lot of people on it. It was yeah. uh, Alan... Uh, Alan... Alan something... Stuart Copeland, you... No, no, but the producer was Alan something or other. I've forgotten his name right now. I don't, uh, Alan Ship... Yeah, Shipton. Shipton. Alan Shipton. I was actually in a group with Alan Shipton. He was the guitar player that took the... Um, 
uh, guitar chair after Albert Lee left the Thunderbirds. Mm. Chris Farlow was the singer, had a number one single in England written by Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. And uh, Alan Shipton came in when Albert left. And I played with Alan for about six months. So Chris Farlow was like um, our equivalent of Otis Redding. Mm -hmm. um, big album, Art of Chris Farlow, number one single written by the Stones. And he was the guy that took me out of Birmingham, which is in the center of England, a bit like Detroit. We make cars there, Land Rover, Jaguar, yeah. and said, do you want to come down to London and play? You uh, saw me playing when he was on the same bill as me with his group, the Thunderbirds. And that was my connection to getting into London and getting into the music scene there. Mm -hmm. And during that period, one of the guys left and Alan Shipton, who actually produced that Daltrey album over a Raging Moon, that's when I worked with him. Okay, and did they just come in and say, hey, just do a drum well, solo for doing yeah, anything about that session? No, no, it's simple, just come in and play. You know, you have to understand that we toured with The Who on a regular basis when we were track records with The Crazy World of Arthur Brown. Mm -hmm. So it was a case of Roger picking up the phone and saying, would you do this? I'm doing, a, I'm doing some pictures uh, for Roger. He's got a book on cancer that he's um, um, trying to sell these photographs in one big, beautiful coffee table book. Mm -hmm. And he's got this um, great photographer coming out to take pictures of all these well-known people in the music business uh, and, and donate it all to, to the cause. Mm -hmm. As you know, he does the, um, the um, Teenager Cancer Trust of yeah. Great Britain. He runs at the Royal Albert Hall, and he runs that over three, four days, and the groups are sensational that play. So I've always had some connection with him. He was also at Greg Lake's funeral. He was the only sort of, dare I say, rock star. That would have said his <laughs> funeral. So there's always been a connection with him. So yeah. this was a very easy thing to do. Called up, would you do it, Carl? Of course. And you just did a solo and they'd edit it and fit it in. Whatever had to happen, yes. Interesting. Okay. Good to know. Okay. Devona. I wanted to know from the Thunderbirds, later ELP and Asia, what kind of band contracts have you had and what has been the impact for you understanding the business as well as just your career personally? Okay, so when, when I first started and I was signed, let's say, to the Robert Stigwood organization. Robert Stigwood produced like um, hair, um, Saturday Night Fever, the, the Bee Gees, this was all his, yeah. you know. Cream. Cream and Hendrix. Yeah. Cream. Uh, Cream and more. Hendrix was actually track records. Mm -hmm. But he had been working for Brian Epstein at NEMS. Maybe, but he's actually signed Hendrix to track right. records. So the actual um, uh, Robert Stigwood organization dealt with theater mm -hmm. and they dealt with, with groups. So my very first contract was with B&C Records, and that contract was a very sort of straight ahead sort of European, UK contract. It didn't actually involve, um, how can I put it, a deal in America. But what it did involve was a distribution deal B&C could do without telling us. So they could walk on and go and sell it. And those days, don't forget, it was quite sort of primitive, the music business thing. So to us, it looked like we hadn't got a deal, but we had, they had got the deal and could collect yeah. on, a, on a distribution deal you can collect. Um, not the best kind of deal to have. If you're part of a distribution deal with a major company, let's say like Universal, Universal will always put their artists at the front of the bus, they're going to the shops first in those days, mm -hmm. uh, and your stuff is always at the very back because they're only distributing it. Yeah. They're not distributing it and promoting it. So that was like a learning curve. So I fell into a bag there. I thought, ah, oh, that's what happens. Unfortunately, I didn't pick up on it. Uh, you're talking about somebody who's just like 19, coming into 20, yeah. but I learned. It was the Robert Stigwood organization, so I was protected. And I went to Robert and I, I said, tell me how this works. And the Atomic Rooster never got to America, so it really didn't make any difference as far as sales. The sales were 
Blue Chip in Europe, very good underground band mm -hmm. and doing very, very well, mm -hmm. extremely well. Actually, the, the Atomic Rooster story, which would be interesting for you, would be when I was approached by um, EG Management, who, married, who managed uh, Greg Lake in King Crimson, mm -hmm. Roxy Music and T-Rex, when they approached me, um, I was recording with the Atomic Rooster and I started to record a track called Tomorrow Night. And Tomorrow Night was the only number one single Atomic Rooster had. But it was a demo I was making. We were putting stuff together. By the time I got contacted by EG to go and play with Greg and Keith, uh, I kind of said no, first of all, because I got you know this going and everything was working. Mm -hmm. By the time I joined Greg and Keith, Atomic Rooster had to re-record this track with a different drummer, with their new drummer. Mm -hmm. And of course, when I'm sitting in the rehearsal room with Greg and Keith for about six months on that first album or three months, you know, getting the stuff together, Atomic Rooster went to number one. So I actually thought, what a terrible mistake I made. Um, but the mistake wasn't a mistake long term. But it just shows you how the music business yeah. goes. You just never really know. Well, I just want to, it seems like you're very business savvy after that one experience. Um, not really. I, I learn every day like we all do. I learned from this convention an awful lot. Mm. What did you take away? I'm not going to go into what I actually learned, but let me just tell you, I, I learned that things haven't progressed. Let me just tell you that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right? Let me just tell you that. I'll take that away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> take that away with you. Well, as a drummer. Yes. Um, because you, I hate saying just drummer, but drummer percussionist. Don't mind. Revenue streams Don't mind. I'm very proud to be a drummer. Very Good. proud. Just to be a drummer, I'm very proud. Oh, it's the good. only thing I do. Well, and it's the only thing with, I do. And with that in mind, what are the rep, because other people are going to listen to that, yes. this, who are drummers. If I want to be a drummer, um, let's say I'm yes. 22 years yes. old, I want to follow the, yes. the steps of yes. you. What are the revenue streams of a drummer? First of, all, do don't, first of all, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> what are the revenue, revenue streams of a drummer are the same for a violinist, cello mm -hmm. player, whatever you do. You control your own destiny. You can make your own business. And you can you can basically force your own luck as well. You mm -hmm. can you can be lucky. If you f if you think unlucky, you'll be unlucky. If you think positive, you'll be positive. Just figure it out. I've been in one, two, three. I've been in three bands that have had number one singles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How many musicians will sit at this table today? Will you interview? And you, they'll be able to say yeah, that. Right. I doubt if any. Right. I doubt it. So I'm talking about Arthur Brown. I'm talking about Asia, and I'm talking about ELP. So you control your own destiny. You have to know what's going on in the market. You have to know what music is, is, is like working. If you like that music, then you can get into it. And you can make, you can make it your own. Okay. So if you like, we call it psychedelic, you call it psychedelia. If you like that sort of 68 sort of theater rock, which happened before Bowie, which was Arthur Brown, which I did, mm -hmm. I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I used to go to the UFO club and watch all this, you know, Pink Floyd play and all the smoke and the flashing lights. And then Arthur Brown would come on and he would have costumes and a fire helmet. Yeah. And he used to come on in this 12 foot sort of uh, nine foot wheel with stretch cloth both sides and this was a womb and he'd come out of this thing and start saying i think wow that's the blueprint that's the future and when you're young these pennies drop yeah. quickly you go yes i want to be part of that so when i was called up to play on their record and i don't never did sessions because we had this agreement with uh, my family because we're all musicians that you, you don't play sessions because you only get paid for sessions. Right. You want a percentage of something. I decided to do this when I got called. I said, to, I called up my father. I said, I'm going to play on this guy's record because, you know, I really enjoy them. I went to see them, and they're great. Now there was about three drummers on there. There was uh, John, uh, John Heisman, John Marshall, um, Drayson Theka, on the on the first album. 
Um, fire was recorded about six times. All I can tell you is I got paid for it. I couldn't tell you if it was me or not. All I can tell you is they gave me 20% of everything, which is very nice, which yeah. is very little money, actually, because the accounting was appalling in those days. Yeah. So that's how that whole thing sort of started, and that's kind of where you know, it went for me. Anyway, that's it. Are you talking about 20% of the publishing? I'm talking, no, the publishing actually went to the writers. They had a deal of their own. Yeah. I'm talking about 20% of any merch we sold, which was on a very low level. I'm talking about 20% of the concerts. I'm talking about 20% of whatever went on. And that was similar to the other members of the band? Um, that was exactly the same, actually. Exactly Arthur took same. a little more. Yeah. There was four of us, which was quite, which, you know, which was okay. Yeah. It would have been a 40% for him. Okay. How did you feel about that? I didn't feel very good about that at all, and he didn't feel very good about it at all. And in actual fact, at the end of the day, he only took it for a brief period of time. Okay. And uh, um, Vincent Crane, who was the main writer, who was the main writer on Fire, which was the big hit, um, didn't go along with that. And it was only when I discovered, because I was brought in last, because they were already here, mm -hmm. and the drummer that they got had faded away, Drace and Thika, Thika, and they were about to leap and go into the charts. They called me, it's only when I got over, I found out the unease within the band, and I did not have the power to say, well, why should you get that? You know, why should you get 40% and the band only get 20%? Arthur wasn't interested in taking more at all. He was being forced into that. By the, and Arthur, if you ever meet him today, you'll know immediately he wouldn't say that. Mm -hmm. And um, it was very difficult to change. All I can tell you is I doubt if he got an extra 20% because the accounting was appalling, mm -hmm. absolutely appalling, and the collection was appalling, and the publishing was not right. There was four people who wrote Fire, for example, and every one of them's complained. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Don't so forget the music business was very, very, uh, very... Um, primitive. Extremely primitive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's pretty. It's primitive today. It's not mm -hmm. the naivety today is as much today as what it was then. I yeah. mean, if you think about it, when people started streaming uh, and, um, and downloading whatever, you know, all the accountants were very happy. Oh, we don't have to buy stock. We don't have to have warehouse space. Hang on a minute. How much do you make out of streaming now? Nothing. How much do you make out of like mm -hmm. you know down nothing? Mm -hmm. How can, you, how, can you, how can you download a part of a concept album? You're not going to get the story. So, so it just doesn't work. But they were greedy, accountants were greedy. And now they realize, what a mistake. How much did we lose, right? Mm. So it's still, it, this business is an ongoing sort of lear learning process. And the minute technology gets in the way, it's a help and it's a hindrance. Yeah. And you've got to find a way around it every time. And unfortunately, what's happened uh, or fortunately, should I say, it's come right back to live performance on every level. On every level, it's live performance, whether you're a bar band, whether you're a, a sort of, a, how can I put it, a, an art centre band, whether you're a small theatre band, mm -hmm. whether you're arena, A-lister or whatever, it's all come back to this. If you are an A-lister, yes, you'll make money out of streaming and download. If you're not, then really forget about it. You might as well sell your merch and sell your hard copies across the counter. Yeah. Because at, at concerts, you probably sell more CDs than what you'll sell, than Amazon will sell. Mm -hmm. you know? And Amazon will be the only place to go and get it. Mm -hmm. That's what it's like. Mm -hmm. So for me, what, what the business is actually short of is what I would call imaginative um, promoters. Like clubs that are in business are clubs today that serve food, proper sit-down, not finger food, but sit down and eat. Like the city, city wine, wine, you've got it, yeah, or yeah. like BB King's, or like um, House of Blues, that yeah, type of thing. Yeah. There are a few of them have gone out of business. Those businesses will survive.
because people are after a bit more. People will actually pay more for a ticket to be in an environment that you can exactly. see and hear well, and you'll get your wife or girlfriend to come along if she knows she can sit down. Yeah. They won't stand up. It doesn't yeah. matter what demographic they are. If right. people can sit down and enjoy a concert, yes, you'll always get your audience surfing sort of bands, the metal bands, and people want to stand up. You'll get that. But overall, it is changing to people are more sophisticated. The kids of yeah. 20 today know a lot more than kids of 20 years back. And if they can go somewhere and sit down, they'll do that. They will actually do that, as well as the older people. And so the business now is really kind of trying to move around. People are finding it hard to invest in buildings and put all of this in. It's a long-term project that's going to reap good rewards, that's for sure, a sit-down audience. Even if it's not a theatre and it's a supper club type of thing, if that's what you want to call it, it will work. It will work. If you go to BB King's, I know it's on 42nd Street, I must have played it four times. Yeah, so I decided not to play it this year. We're playing an, another theatre out on the Staten Island somewhere. But that place, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, is full. Tourists. It's tourists. It's a tourist trap. Yeah. Plus, it's in the right place. Plus, what happens? You sit down. The food's good. Yeah. There's a beautiful bar. There's a separate restaurant here if you don't want to be where the music is. If you want to be where the music is and eat, you know. Well, in America, we're doing that in the movie theatres now. We're doing it in a UK too. Yeah. Listen, this is across the entertainment. People, are, we've got a thing called Everyman Cinema. We call them mm -hmm. cinemas, not movie theaters. Everyman Cinema. And what it is, you'll get there and you'll have a couch this size with lovely cushions, a nice yeah. table each side, armrest. And you'll order a drink or whatever. It will be brought into you. Or you order a coffee. Or you might order a light snack or whatever. And there'll be maybe one, two, maybe eight rows of sofas. And in each yeah. row, yeah. there's five sofas. Beautiful surround sound. You're going to pay double for the ticket. You're going to go every day. Because <laughs> it it's a proper experience. Yeah, it's right. it's experience. So you can't tell me it's not going to go across into music. It will. Yeah. People are ready. It's an industry standard. It just yeah. needs to be yeah. set now. And that's what it's all about. And of course, you know, the, the live situation will always keep music alive, providing you're giving people what they want. People don't spend their money on something they, I've got to stand up, I'm not going to come with you, darling, I'll stay at home and watch the TV, you go and see your local, your, your favourite band. That gets said. Mm -hmm. If there's dinner involved and there's a nice chair and a good view, clean toilets, they're going to be there. Right. <laughs> and it's as basic as that, guys. It's, it, yeah. This is not rocket science. It's just where we are now. Yeah. Thank God. <laughs> so when you went from um, Crazy World of Arthur yeah. Brown, for yeah. example, and you just mentioned like the splits. Yeah, there, yeah. When, when ELP began and yes. there were the three of, did you guys have a verbal or an actual we had a verbal agreement that, to 3% yeah person? we had a verbal agreement that we'd split all the publishing three ways let's let's talk about publishing writing 100% that we'd split 50% three ways on the on the publishing yeah and on the writing yeah. whoever wrote what was it just a little bit he wrote in the middle Carl because I'd write the least let's give him 10% we'll take 20 a piece or I wrote 30% of the music because it's such a long piece and there's only one short song in the middle, you get 20%, Greg. So every split was different. Uh. But every basis was the same. Mm -hmm. 50 publishing, publishing. and this. Right. Listen, it might be 20, 25, yeah. 25 on the writing. Yeah. It depends. Yeah. So that's the best way to run a group. Mm -hmm. Was that hard to have those discussions? Because you no, we talked no, no, to no, 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 Why are people uncomfortable about talking about money? Because they're because it's talking about money. Why? What's yeah. uncomfortable about talking about money? Well, well, I've never got that. No, I've never got that. I just right. don't understand that. It's money that you put back into the art. It's money that makes the art better. You can direct money and keep yourself working. You can direct money and have more fun. Right. It's all about money. 
It's about the art. The art comes first, don't mistake that. The art comes first, but what drives the art? What improves it? We couldn't have an orchestra, 64 piece orchestra, unless we talked about money. Mm -hmm. You got it? So money's not a, a bad word. You know, making a, making a profit's not a bad word. Mm -hmm. Losing money is not a bad word, because if you lost money, you learned a lesson. Hey, I like that too. <laughs> Right. It's positive. Yeah, it's so money is not money is not a deal. Money is not money is a problem in life for people. Right. Money is a problem with relationships. Re people who can't talk about money within their relationship is a problem. Mm -hmm. And that I, listen, I come from just so you know the way I am. There's a reason the way I am is I come from family of musicians. Mm -hmm. uh, grandfather, professor of music, world academy, yeah. harmony and cello. His brother, my other grandfather, was a kind of. Oh, orchestral sort of pit drummer, variety theatres, had his own orchestra. And their mother, my great-great-grandmother, classical guitar player, my father a piano player, my brother is a drummer, my nephew is a drummer, so my eldest brother was a guitar player. My father died when I was two years old, he was a piano player. My stepfather who came in was a retailer. We owned shops, two shops we owned and a third shop we had in partnership with someone but we were actually um we were stall he was a market man he had stalls he had three stalls which he preferred to work in the market so i actually learned a lot from him and he also was a song and dance man he, he was semi-professional he loved to tap dance he loved to strum and play his mm. guitar mm. he loved to sing and he could play drums badly and he knows that <laughs> that's it uh, so i had this music coming at me and then at a certain time in my life that this guy was in my life, because he was my only dad, really, because my real father died when I was two, the one that played piano. He was the guy that sort of, we got into business, and I used to go along and work in one of the shops, and I'd get a penny in the pound. Mm. So if they made 300 pounds, I'd get 300 pennies. Mm. And he'd make me count the 300 pounds, and I'd count every penny as well, that I got it. So money was always something to be talked about, because we'd go straight to a great restaurant that night, and we'd go and eat. We'd come back from the market, and we'd go to the, I don't know, whatever the, restaurant it would be and I remember when I was a kid seven years old going out on, on the market Saturdays with my dad we'd always go to a, a lovely restaurant afterwards I'd eat out twice a week in restaurants and things and I'd go back to school and say oh I went to a great restaurant my the, the, the um, what was it the Shah de Vive or something and oh what restaurant because it you know you can imagine mm -hmm. 1957 people didn't go to a lot of restaurants I thought it was norm yeah right and why is that oh well I counted out all my pennies that I made from the money and this is what I, so that was it so you learn to value money and understand it and not be afraid to talk about it. I'm never afraid to talk about it. I think it's something you should talk about in private. I don't think you should talk about, you know, if we had a, a personal problem with money, we wouldn't talk about it in front of these two guys. We'd resolve it ourselves, you know? Yeah. And you'd hope it wouldn't get to that in the first place. So that's how I look at it. But money drives music, you know? That's the story. Mm -hmm. uh, every penny that we made with ELP, we managed to pump it back in. Mm -hmm. ELP was not a rich group. Mm -hmm. We made well. I, I, I'm not completely poverty. Right. I made very well, and you know, I, I could have stopped. I mean, I retired. You know, retired all my companies um, 17 years ago. I had to form new companies to collect residual earnings, but I went into retirement um, legally mm -hmm. on paper 17 years ago. I've been working every day since. You know, mm -hmm. um, why did was that for tax purposes? Well, no, no, we, no, no. There's a there's a law in England that if you want to collect on a private pension. Mm -hmm a self-administered pension, you know what that is, when you actually put yeah. money in yourself, right. it's not controlled right. by the government or a company, yeah. it's self 
run, IRA. Yeah, self-run. Right. So a self-administered pension costs about two, three thousand dollars to set up. You have to have a trustee, and there has to be separate accounting done. But once you have a pension like this, what you can do, for example, you can buy rental properties, mm -hmm. and you can collect the rent but not pay tax on it legally. Mm -hmm. You only pay tax on it at a lower rate when you retire. Ah. Um, so it gives you the capital gain of the property, it gives yeah. you the benefit of making the interest on, on the money, which is not taxed, mm -hmm. you know, but the actual money you t took in in the first place is taxed. So there's lots of different things. It's called self-administered. And, you know, that's what was set up. And so I, I've had situations like that presented to me and I've grabbed them and it's been fantastic. We all, we all have government pensions like you normally do, um, but ELP didn't make a ton of money. We made a, a lot of money, but, you know, like the orchestra would have cost a ton. The orchestra cost $200,000 per week to keep on the road. We kept it on the road for six weeks. We cancelled the rest of the tour because we weren't filling the seats. It was cheaper to stop it mm -hmm. and carry on for three weeks and um, put the book straight, which we did, and leave it at that. We'd already recorded at the um, Olympic Stadium, played to 78,000 people. So we got a film out of it and we got a live recording. So done. Mm -hmm. So it was okay. Yeah. So it was pointless going on and saying, well, we're going to start. No, no, business. It's, we've got it. We've got everything we need. It's not actually making money. And, and in hindsight, and I didn't say it at the time, but it was a big thing in my mind. Because we'd been away so long, I think ELP should have gone out and showed them the old card trick first. This is the three. And then mm. augmented the orchestra, you know, done it the other way yeah. around, rather than playing and then taking away. Yeah, yeah. I have to tell you, though, the shows as the trio went down better. Yeah, yeah, and then the people wanted to see that, you know. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was um, probably um, looser, you know. Yeah. Had to be very stiff. Yeah, the exactly. But it worked mar remarkably well. Unfortunately, the recording wasn't great. That was a bit, a bit of a disaster there, but it's okay. And then when you went to Asia, when Asia was formed, <coughs> did you take those lessons and work the way you had it structured with that band? Was no, because what them? happened with Asia, um, a couple of the guys had already got publishing agreements, which mm. weren't good, and... Um, there was ways around that, and I did explain to him at the time, which I'm not going to go into because it sounds like it's illegal, but it's not, but I'm not going to go into it, um, where I could have basically, they could have said, Carl wrote part of this, and he's going to get paid 20%, but really I didn't write part of that, and I'd keep a percentage of the 20, and I'd make sure they get the other, and that could have been in a written right, document, yeah. basically, because the deals they had were so bad. That's how you get around that. We didn't do it but that is still happening today. That mm -hmm. still happens today. Yeah. So when someone's caught up in a bad deal, they can say, this. For the f he actually wrote 25%, though he didn't. Right. No one yeah. knows that. Right. What percentage of that 25 he gives you, 5% he's got another 20% yeah. he didn't have. Right. And that's how you get around it. It's just the same as them giving you such a bad deal, you're not making the right money. Yeah. You're just correcting it your side. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. We don't like to do those type of things, but right. let me tell you, they happen. Uh, Asia was already set up, so that was it. All that needed to happen with Asia, um, I was offered, um, I wasn't the first drummer, incidentally. Um, the first drummer was uh, Simon, Phillips. Simon Phillips. Oh, Simon Phillips. And Simon Phillips got offered, um, he wanted um, something like, um, don't quote me on this, but it was at the time, it was something like 500 pounds for rehearsals, 1,000 pounds a week mm. on the road. Mm. Well, I, I, as I told you before, I don't play for wages, I play for percentages only. 
um, at the beginning of the discussion, I mentioned that, I don't know if you recall. Mm -hmm. So I said to Asia, as far as I'm concerned, this is fine for me, um, I'll take you know my 25% of everything. Um, I understand there's a slightly different publishing thing, whatever I write, I write, and I'll have my own publishing deal anyway, that's how that will work, uh, and that's where we are. Because don't forget, they'd all, all been in so many famous bands before, there's so many publishing deals tied up or still running, mm -hmm. right? So it was hard to do it from scratch. ELP, we did it from scratch, because everybody happened to be free, so that was really right. nice. Asia wasn't quite that way. Um, so we did that. Um, they called me, asked me, would I like to join? And I said, yes, I want 25% of everything. And they said, oh, well, that's great. Uh, Brian Lane was the manager. It was basically John Wetton who passed, who's, who's died, yeah. well, this year, actually, January yeah. the 31st, he died, and Steve Howe. Uh, Jeff Downs joined last, I was the third person to join. Yeah. And um, I was, at, I was I'd taken roughly three years off I'd taken 15 months to build a house in the Canary Islands where I was living, mm -hmm. which I did. And then I had another sort of, uh, um, sort of like 10 months kind of tying up Emerson Lake and Palmer business because we had to close down some touring companies which weren't going to be used. We realized they weren't. So when they called me, I was ready to go. Um, I was still fairly young at the time, probably about 34, something like 33, just 34. So I said, yes, um, I'd definitely do that. This is what I want. And um, there's no problem because that's the way it should have been. And sort of, there's a prime example of you know somebody asking for a wage for rehearsals, a wage for touring. Mm. It's extremely naive, mm. because I think in the first year, you know, I made, well, I'm not going to tell you how much I made, but let me tell you, it was just a horrendous right. amount. Mm -hmm. When you think of the album was number one for seven weeks yeah. and a single, I mean, just think about the, the playtime on that, and, yeah, the, right. and the concerts, which weren't fantastic and they weren't great, because we never got above eight thousand a night because we didn't tour enough. Um, was still good, but they weren't the money-making machine you might have thought it would have been. Uh, and the classic mistake with Asia was it was taken off the road too soon before globally it had established itself because the record company was greedy, and I do love David Geffen immensely, but it was a bit greedy at the time, say, so get in and make another album straight away. Because making another album straight away, you've got less time to write it, number one. You haven't established yourself globally with the first album because you've not toured everywhere in the world, mm -hmm. which you should do. You need to put that rock steady bass down, take time off, then record, then come out and have another shot. Instead, we went in straight away after about eight, nine months and recorded another album wrong. But hindsight's right. a marvelous thing, isn't it? The one thing you did have going <laughs> for you, though, at the time, because you weren't touring, was the beginning was of social MTV. media. Social media, yeah, yeah, yeah beginning MTV. Well, that was David Geffen, and um, VH1 was great. MTV had come along, and we were in contact with uh, Godly Cream, um, uh, Godly and Cream, and they were making videos. They made three, three, four videos for us, and they became you know, the blueprint. I mean, of what mm. they should be. You know, mm. I think the first video to be played. On, uh, on the TV there was um, the, the Buggles. And Jeff Downs was in the Buggles, mm -hmm. who's in Asia, who's in Yes mm -hmm. Now. Um, so that was the beginning of it, and we just went on and recorded a video with Godly and Cream of Heat of the Moment, onto Only Time Will Tell, mm -hmm. and then there was a ballad, and there was something, there was about four of them we did. The Soul Survivor. Don't Cry, you know. Yeah, yeah. Don't Cry was the, the next record, right? Yes, yeah. 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 Interesting. Um, why did you, who had set up the deal with Geffen? Geffen had been looking for a group. Yeah. Geffen is very proactive. Hempstream works and all that stuff. Geffen was a manager. He's been both sides of the fence. He teamed up with a guy called um, Ed Rosenberg, who was absolutely a fantastic sort of music biz accountant, knew all the, all the collection things. He knew all about third party deals and this and that and what goes on. And David, you know, is incredibly knowledgeable. He knew the time was right. 
It's like I told you at the beginning, when you, when you want to sort of direct your career, you need to see what's happening out there. See if you fit into that stuff that's working. If you do, then you go after it. Say like Arthur Brown. Geffen, as a manager, as a wanting to own his own record company, looked out there and said, what's needed now? Punk thing is coming to a bit of an end. I think the American public want what we want to go for this. Mm. Let's see if we can get them to do it. That's what I think. Mm. And that only comes through experience, unfortunately. You know, it's, you can't get it out of a book. You only can buy it, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was incredibly knowledgeable mm. and influential um, to the point where, you know, um, men at work were number one. They knocked us off the number one place. And I casually said, could we go back to number one? Will that ever happen? Will we ever, will we ever sell enough? He said, we can look into that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great answer to that. Yeah, and we yeah. did. Uh -huh. You have to understand yeah. how the music business has changed, you know, a lot of it, you know, they always say in life it's who you know, and it really is who you know in the music business, yeah. but knowing a lot of people doesn't mean that you know a lot of good people. Knowing the right people in the right place at the right time is really how we push this business forward, because there are a lot of people who are, who are not great in our business, and yeah. they really shouldn't be there. Right. You know, it's just the way it is, unfortunately, and they've just not developed. You know, it takes time, and uh, somebody like David Geffen is a shining star. Right. Um, okay, so we need to wrap this up. All yeah. Right. So great. Uh, yeah, we want to appreciate. No, say thank I, you. We yeah. so, <laughs> Carl Palmer, thank you very much for being You're on this business. Yeah, Thanks for the interview. Yeah. Very, uh, very, very nice, good. by the way. Thank you, Devon. Hope it goes well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And see you soon. Adios. Adios. Yeah, we're gone. Come away, you know I'm yours until the end.